Welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast, Episode 74. Welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk Podcast. At the beginning of this episode, as always, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the country that we are meeting on today, the Arakwal people of the Banjalong Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. With me today is Mr. Barry Hill, bass player, guitar player and uh, academic. Welcome to the podcast. How are you, Barry? Thank you, Jan. I'll just edit that initial and say Dr. Barry Hill. Oh, excuse <laughs> me, of course. <laughs> Dr. Barry Hill. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> well, look, uh, yeah. maybe let's just get started with that. Yeah, uh, sure. So uh, you've got an academic background. You've got a BA from Monash, if I'm not mistaken, and a PhD from SCU. Yeah, I I actually started out just doing an arts degree at Macquarie University. Uh, I left high school really just wanting to be a musician, liking lots of different types of music, but my parents were really keen for me to do something to do with academia. And at the time, I wasn't really a great classical musician or a very well-studied jazz musician, and there was no real courses back then in the dark ages of the late 80s for people who were sort of more interested in contemporary music. So I just did an arts degree and just got into the music scene in Sydney and I've actually spent most of my music career as just being a professional musician and a bass player and along the way I just got more and more interested in the... I suppose the what what you might say the intellectual side of music making mm -hmm. and yep. a lot of my bandmates were going gee you're you know you talk a lot about this stuff you know maybe you should study it again and, <laughs> yeah. and so after yeah. a music project fell over in Melbourne that I was with I was at a loose end and went back to finish my arts degree in honors and focused on music at Monash and uh, really loved it I'd, I'd hated doing a, a normal arts degree and when I got into music and the stuff that I was interested in, I just, I just yeah, really sailed through the program down there, fantastic music school in Monash in University in Melbourne and then got a scholarship to do my PhD up at Southern Cross University here in Lismore. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful, nice. Uh, can you explain in a bit more detail what exactly you were specialising in? Okay, uh, I think I've got a seven-second grab for my PhD. So I, I, I was at the time I was went back to working or went back to studying. I was playing in a live electronica band called The Bird uh, that were quite famous in Australia in the early two thousands. Yeah, look and, them uh, up, everybody. Look them up. They're great. Yeah, the, yeah. The Bird, um, especially the the album I was involved with, which went really well, actually called Birdville Sessions, um, and. And I was playing in that and I was really getting interested in the way that uh, the dance music scene or the electronic dance music scene was starting to interact with the jazz music scene. And I was seeing, 
you know, I was attending a lot of jam sessions where like a turntablist would come along or a person with synthesizers would come along and it was... Is really is the first time I'd seen a bit of a meeting between electronic dance musicians and improvising musicians playing in inverted commas traditional instruments. So I focused on in my PhD this idea of humans making music with machines and and I won't go into it because you can talk about your PhD for hours and hours. But what I was interested in was that the way that musicians had changed their their um, way of working or what they were, in, that were inspired uh, by was no longer just musicians like jazz musicians, like great musicians like Miles Davis or John Coltrane, people starting to listening to DJ Shadow or Aphex Twin or I was interested in Al Tecker and a lot of the LTJ Bukum albums of the late 90s, where which is all drum and bass, all computer programmed and sequenced. And I just... Uh, I just was interested in the way that musicians were starting to be influenced and trying to imitate computers. And so that's why I came up with this idea of human machine music. Uh, and I did a PhD where I looked at I looked at the sort of nuts and bolts of trying to play like a computer in a, in a live band. So rather than thinking about verses and solos and and breaks, we were sort of more talking about developing a a sound texture like electronic music or like, like like electronic music producers do to to try and get a, get that sort of amazing sense of timbral variation that exists within electronic dance music but keep it in a live music context and make it a little bit improvised so that's what i was interested in i won't maybe go into too much more detail about it the only other interesting thing i'd like to say is that there's a really great French um, writer called Jacques Attali who talked about the way musicians in the creative class innovate change within society and a lot of the ways that musicians, and this is his ideas, uh, a lot of the way musicians and artists work is the way the rest of society works in the future. So in a sense, musicians are the canary in the coal mine for the way society is going to <laughs> well change. And so... And so if you look at the development of computer music in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was sort of musicians who were the first people to adopt computing as a big part of their creative process. And the big changes that happened with technology in the 70s with digital you know, synthesizers and samplers and MIDI integration, um, all that stuff it sort of predates what was happening with word processing and Excel spreadsheets. So I got into this idea that maybe we're all going to start imitating machines in what we do in our mm. wider work. So I suppose that was the intellectual or pedagogical background for my PhD. But um, my supervisor seemed to like it. So Wow. <laughs> wow, that's deep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look, um, I, I usually leave this question for the end of a podcast, but what is your prediction for the future? Uh, oh, it's... With AI on the horizon and, you know, what, what else What else is going to happen? And what, what, yeah, it's really... Look crystal ball. It's, it, it's a really fascinating one. Um, what we've been seeing, I think, is a real change in the way that people consume music. People are less, in, are less able to actually play it or participate in music making themselves. Much more people are just listening to it on their headphones or working with computers to make music. I was just reading yesterday about the new Korean K-pop band, which is completely 
AI. There's no actual people involved in the band anymore. So this is this is maybe they're saying it's the next BTS um, sensation in Korea. And you've got to look at the Asian music industry as one that's becoming much more prominent these days. In a sense, in the in the you know if you think of the United States as being this incredible powerhouse of cultural innovation in contemporary music in the late 19th and 20th centuries, and the way Europe has also been an innovator of change and really promoted the electronic dance music scene, you can now see this sort of pivot to Asia in terms of the cultural influence Asia's having just because the market is so big and music is always an industry as well as a culture and an art form. So, you know, the the popular music industry may well be AI-driven, but I think we'll never be able to recreate with AI that sort of human interaction mm. um, that, okay. that that happens on stage, the theatre of playing yeah. music together. So mm. I think the the human nature of music making will always exist, but I think AI will play a bigger and bigger role. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. Look, uh, let's look at a couple of projects that you are currently involved in. What are you up to these days? Um, I'm still, um, I still uh, collaborate with um, my longtime collaboration partners, Rob Walsh and my brother Matt Hill, in a band called Amphibian. And I can spruik the website amphibianmusic.com. And we've we've released a couple of vinyls in the last few years. Changed a bit of our direction to be more what. I suppose you might call post-rock sort of a bit different to the more ambient music that I was making in around, say, around 2000 with Amphibian. And that and that project has been quite successful sort of in an underground way for us, um, probably more successful overseas than it has been here, especially we seem to have a huge fan base in Japan. Wow. Um, and so... Every now and again, we dig, we get this nice big APRA check from Japan, and it's like, oh, that's nice. But um, <laughs> but but we aren't really playing so much together. But we're at the moment just re-releasing sort of our back catalogue on all the digital platforms mm. because that band was really um, sort of coming into prominence just before the whole shift to downloading and um, streaming music. So the catalogue for that band sort of exists on CD and vinyl. And so we're just sort of converting it all to yeah. to the streaming services, even though they don't really pay us that much. And um, I'm involved in a couple of acoustic projects just locally here. Um, a great one with uh, my partner, Jessie Ventilla, and a great um, singer friend of hers, Tietza, and uh, her partner, Dan Reed. Um, we've got a band which we've called in a sort of sort of a funny way, the husband's auxiliary because it's it's sort of Tietzer and Jesse's band and me and Dan are sort of just the people who are supporting them. And that's just, <laughs> you know, we're playing a bit of um, sort of Americana, a bit of blues, grass, you know, in our sort of Australian way and a bit of swing, sort of gypsy style. And that's just, that's a nice fun band to play. I'm also playing with a really lovely Colombian salsa piano player up here, um, Carmelo and a couple of conga players and we're slowly putting together a, I suppose, Afro-Cuban-esque sort of um, dance jam band, which is really fun wow. to play. I've always loved Afro-Cuban music and had a sort of Colombian connection in my family on my mother's side. So 
I've been to Colombia quite a few times and love the music scene over in Colombia. It's I was there earlier this year and it was, it's just going off over there. Just fantastic music in all sorts of genres. Wow. That yeah. is a lot of projects you're involved with. Well, yeah. That should keep you on your toes. <laughs> yeah. I, the other project I suppose I, I like talking about is this solar-powered um, sound system project which we've been developing at the uni, which I've sort of taken in a few different directions. So ostensibly it's just a, um, a solar battery generator that can take the place of diesel generators at festivals and power stage equipment. And that's been going for about 10 years. We've done about 60 festivals around Australia and it's been going really well. I've also turned that into a, I've got a bit of a geeky side to my creativity. So I like, um, I've turned that into a musical instrument in itself. So oh, convert, wow. converted the photovoltaic data. This can get very geeky, sorry people. But uh, I fo um, changed the, the photovoltaic data coming off the solar panels and put that into a um, system called Open Sound Control, which is, you can consider to be like a wireless MIDI and um, then made made sort of note values out of that in Ableton and Max MSP and created <laughs> created an instrument which is played by the sun. So that's also a fun project that I've been doing. So that's how, does it, how, how does it sound? We did a – at the last Woodford Folk Festival, we set it up on the hilltop stage because that was powering the hilltop up on the top of Woodford Folk Festival and we pointed it at the, at the sunrise and um, – And it was powering the Tuvan throat singers at the time, and we, I hit record on the on the Ableton system. And as the sun came up, and also time did a time lapse video of the sun coming up as well. And I've synced the video and the music together, and it sounds. I don't know whether you, you know sort of the the. It sounds like the a minimalist classical composer, sort of contemporary like Arvo Part or something. It sounds like a really slow-moving string quartet. So I wow. I mapped all the values of the regulator data of um, battery charge, um, system voltage and power consumption and production instantaneously to four different string sounds. And so it sounds like a string quartet <laughs> is being played by the sun and It was, I didn't know quite how it was going to sound. And um, as the sun went behind the clouds, uh, the the music went really dark and and, and sort of brooding and minor. And as the sun came out again, it resolved to this beautiful major chord. So um, that's online. I, I, can, I can give you the, the details for that podcast please, as well. Please, I would um, love to put the link in the, into the show notes. Yeah, yeah. That, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah, I had so, no idea. So I really like that project. It's sort of a bit left field, but mm. but the it's also just teaching people about how we can power things with sustainable energies and get rid of yeah. the diesel generator. That is a fantastic idea. Yeah. Excellent. I think I actually saw you operate uh, that uh, sunflower system. Is, yep, is that, that's that what it's called? called. Yeah, at uh, the Island Vibe Festival a couple of years ago. Yes, yes, yeah. it's a bit of a regular at Island Vibe. Yeah. Um, we didn't get it there this year though. We just had a couple of two. We had too mm. many things on, but um, yeah, it powers a it powers a fifteen thousand watt sound system mm. there, and um, we've got some really good data to show that the average of a sound system at a festival is only like nine hundred watts, even though it says it's even though you're powering four subs and all the backline and all the LED lights, just the average of everything because it's all so efficient these yeah. days. Mm. You can power it pretty successfully off batteries and panels. Wow, cool. Um, I'd like to change the subject a little, if that's okay. Yeah, great. Um, in, in your role at, at Southern Cross, you work with a lot of young creatives yes. and um, you, you probably, I guess, see them um, 
grow creatively and intellectually and academically. Um, have you come across certain character attributes or you know uh, common denominators that that all the really successful musicians have in common? Can, can you comment on that? Yes, I probably can. Uh, when I'm thinking about the current students we've got in the course, there's a couple of people who really, um, I suppose, have 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 patience and they re they practice every day and so they've got discipline you know mm. as well so i've on my electric bass i got three little um motifs put on my fretboard when i got the fretboard changed and um i i just called them practice patience and discipline and i just look at those little symbols and they remind me of that those are the three things that i think musicians and artists really need to have to be successful because It's, it's, it's a long road and a very twisty, hard road to actually make it in the music industry and you have to be simultaneously very organised, very focused on what you want to achieve, have to be very creative and do things originally um, and, and not try and recreate something that's already out there. I try and tell students that, um, you know, Miles, you can't try and sound like Miles Davis or John Coltrane or even yeah. a band like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. You know, it's not no point trying to recreate what's doing well out there. What you really need to do is go with what you want to be as an artist and try and define mm. that for yourself. So if you've got a sophisticated way that you can you can get your creativity out and make it sound original, I think that's the key. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Um Let's look at the bass instrument for a moment. Uh, yeah. You play electric bass, also double bass. Yes, um, I do. Let's start right at the beginning. What should a musician do with their instrument to check or to ensure that the instrument sounds as good as it can? I, so if we're talking about the actual instrument itself, mm. I think... I think some, you know, we can talk about things, if I talk specifically first about electric bass, and maybe some of these are also applicable to acoustic or double bass. So I started out as an electric bass player and um, sort, of, sort of quickly realized that um, if you could play double bass as well as electric and you could read a bit and you were a reliable person, there was a lot of work around in Sydney in the 90s at the time. So... So I started off playing double specifically for a business reason that I thought, okay, I'm going to get double the amount of gigs if I can play double and electric. So, and as far as the actual instrument goes, I think making sure the the action or the height of the strings above the neck is quite um, is quite balanced and symmetrical, and mm -hmm. for each string, and there's no there's no sort of curves or warping or twists in the actual neck of the instrument that's that's really important for for keeping the tuning and the playability uh, over a long period of time just making sure all the electrics work um you know pickups and electronic stuff has been around for a long long time now they haven't really changed a lot since the 50s and 60s so just just getting some basic electronic knowledge will really help mm -hmm. you out, you know, when inevitably at a gig or at a rehearsal like I had yesterday for with a dance project, of course, my electric guitar that I hadn't pulled out because I play a bit of electric as well, um, I hadn't pulled it out for 
few months and they wanted me to play guitar as well as bass. So I plugged it in and, of course, the jack's gone a bit mouldy. Oh, of course. And so it, yeah. it was, you know, that, uh, those sort of things are really easy to fix. So check the electronics, check the action. Um, also just check the way the ergonomics of the neck and, and the actual body of the instrument relate to your own body. Uh, you know, humans are all different sizes. We've got different shaped fingers and elbows and wrists and hands and legs and they all sort of impact the way you connect with your instrument and in a sense there's no real one instrument that's going to suit everyone so it's more about if you can play the instrument and feel like it feels comfortable to play and you're not straining or you're not putting tension on your any of your limbs to try and play it i think that's the main thing mm, okay being comfortable when playing yes yes, yes yeah. so that makes a lot of sense yeah okay Let's talk about paddles and amps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that can be a rabbit hole. Yeah. I, 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 have, I see a lot of students rock up to um, the university workshops and tutorials with this huge pedal board and um, they can't play a major scale, they can't play a blues scale and they can't really read very well. And, but they've got this incredible work of art, which is this pedal board, which has got the best compressors, the best distortion units, the best mm. EQs, the best um, delay and, and reverb effects. And their guitar has the potential to sound incredible, but without the good skills of the person driving it. Yeah, it's you know, a bit back to front. It's a bit yeah. back to front. Yeah. And I find that, that students, and I've got to say men and boys usually, get really obsessed by their pedal board. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah. so is, there's something to be said for really good pedals. Um, I use uh, Eventide MXR pedals. I don't use that many, um, but I've found them to be really awesome for sound mm. quality and just build build quality uh you know there, there's some really great pedals out there there's an amazing one for bass called the akai deep impact pedal which yep. um they made in collaboration with roger lynn and they only did it for about three or four months before the agreement with roger lynn and who's an amazing electronics designer and akai sort of fell apart i think he made the original head rush loop station as well and also was the designer of the mpc mm. so um But so that pedal in particular, I love. And if you see that in my pedal board, it's bashed up and trashed and <laughs> looks terrible, but it still works so yeah, well, yeah, right. really cleanly. Mm. And it's a bass synthesizer emulating pedal. And it's one of the few ones which sounds really, really mm. deep and fat and it's got this fantastic preset system. So you can play like an electronic producer where, you know, through the song, the bass line might be played by two or three different. Um, digital instruments or synthesizer or plugins, and so you can emulate that as an electric bassist. And so that's really cool. Yeah, but I think mm. you know, with pedals, it's 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 they're really good. They define your sound. I, I'm thinking about guitarists like Bill Frizzell or John Schofield or Jimi Hendrix. Even you know their their fame is really their sound. Yeah. It's not necessarily their technique. And um, yeah. and so pedals is a part of making your own sound. And so. If you have if you have pedals and effects that that help you play 
more creatively, then yeah, you've got mm. to use them. But don't forget the basics. Don't forget <laughs> the major scale and all the theory and harmony that humans have developed over thousands of years, which really helps us communicate with each other as musicians. Yeah. So well I tell said. I tell my students that knowing theory and harmony is not just a language for yourself and your own creativity. It's a language of communication with other instrument, other other musicians. And so if you can if you can tell a musician, oh, can you play that A7 in a different inversion? then you're giving them a really clear instruction which they know how to interpret. Whereas if you say, oh, I don't like the way you're playing that chord, that mm-hmm. doesn't really help them that much in explaining what you want to do with that idea. So mm-hmm. it's really a creative language theory and harmony. And so I, yeah. I really encourage students to, to get into that, even though it might not be as fun as the flashing lights of a pedal board. <laughs> Paddleboards have the uh, the reputation of being buzzy and noisy and uh, cause all kinds of trouble as well. Yes. So, have you got any advice on staying, uh, of maintaining a clean sound while still using pedals oh, and avoiding all okay. of those pitfalls? Okay, this is probably coming up against my mm. limit of electrical knowledge, but I know that um, I know and I've definitely experienced that 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 you've got to um, make sure that all your connections between the pedals are really high quality. So all your leads, uh, you know, leads, your, your, your microphone or your audio leads are, 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 are terribly problematic these days. Even my new Damasios that I've bought, which have lifetime warranties on them, have only lasted a couple of years with the way I treat them. And so you've got to be on top of all your connections, making sure, mm. they're, making sure they're really clear. And also your power supplies... Um, matching the right ampage and voltage with the pedals you're using. Um, It might seem that any of those little 9-volt power connectors that you use to power power boards and power pedals can work with each other. But I know that, for example, my Eventide has a very specific level of milliamps that it needs and a very specific voltage. And if it's not getting that, it starts to you know, it starts to not work properly and also create that terrible hum, you know, Mm. good old RF hum and all the different other electrical, you know, know, electrical interferences that can affect your signal. I always try and just buy the best possible pedals I can. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, nice, nice. So fewer but better qualities is the key, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've I've, I've always found that for myself. Um, Mm. When I was younger, I bought, I remember there was a brand of pedal that came out to try and um, compete with Boss called Orion. These made of plastic and they were like half the price, but gee, they sounded bad and they they cut out frequencies and yeah, you'd plug them in. If you plugged a few of them in, you'd get this terrible gain hiss that that would just, you know, it's very hard to get rid of. Stay away from those. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, good. I need your advice on communicating with bass players about a sensitive topic. It's called (laughs) overplaying. <laughs> is is this something you're comfortable talking about? What is what is the right amount of notes oh. for a song? When when is when does overplaying damage a song or weigh down a song? And and when do you know that you've got it right? Oh look, I've got to say, <laughs> Jan, I'm totally guilty of this. In my earlier career, I really wanted to become the next Jaco Pastorius, and um, I used to play things that initially that I thought 
sounded good because they felt good to play and they felt impressive to play because I had developed quite a good technique early on because I I just dived into practice when I started playing bass and and, um, and so I did develop a pretty good facility uh, um, early on and I was studying with a bass player in, in um, Sydney called Steve Hunter who's still, he's a great player but he he was a virtuoso. He was a lead instrument. When you went and saw the Steve Hunter Quartet or the Steve Hunter Trio, you know, the bass player was out the front being like a saxophone player. And it took me a long time to realise that that's not the way to play bass in most settings. Um, and, you know, I've come to I've come to really like bass players that are able to play in a way that you really don't notice them in a mm-hmm. sense. Um, and so one of the first things to answer your question, I would say is that if you can, if you can notice the bass, if you can hear the bass, then there's potential for that bass to be, it might be overplaying. A lot of great tracks, um, you don't even notice the bass. It's just yeah. providing such a beautiful harmonic foundation mm-hmm. that's, that's linking in so beautifully with the drums and the other instruments that, that um, you just feel it as a feeling of the music as you don't actually identify the melodic tones that it's making. Um, I've, I remember there's a really good quote from Joni Mitchell who was playing with Jaco Pastorius in the late 80s or the mid-80s just before he died um, so sadly that um, Joni said that it was really great playing with Jaco Pastorius but she'd really love to have a bass player as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a fantastic, <laughs> you know, there's a fantastic album called Shadows and Light, which is a, which is a live album mm-hmm. that um, Joni does with, you know, it features, you know, just an incredible cast of great jazz musicians, Pat Metheny and Michael Brecker, Lyle Mays, play on Don Elias, just a, just the absolute super band of the '80s, and you really hear Jacko's playing on that album, and he's not playing the bass; he's playing really this this sort of lead complementary instrument to Joni Mitchell, and it sounds fantastic. But it, but you're talking someone who reached, you know, who really defined a new sound on the instrument and had a beautiful mm. tone on his electric fretless and played stuff that was really um, nuanced and always linked in with the music. And he had an incredible musical knowledge as well. So here's someone who has incredible theory knowledge, incredible harmony knowledge, incredible facility and a great tone. And in that sort of setting, I think a bass player, maybe like a soccer player like Lionel Messi, you can get away with doing anything when you're, <laughs> yeah. when you're, when you're absolutely the best in the world mm-hmm. and you, you can play as much as you like. Mm-hmm. But... But, um, you know, I can really hear what Joni's saying in that sometimes it would be really great for the music just for the bass player to play whole tones, you know, play just the root notes of the chord and play them in a way which is really um, beautifully supporting the other instruments mm. because okay. that is the tradition of bass and the word double bass is where the bass is doubling the other stringed instruments in the orchestral section. So in an orchestra, you don't really hear the double basses so much, but a good orchestra like the Berlin Symph or Chicago Symphony have an amazing bass section and it makes the music sound really great. So mm. there's always a danger of overplaying. Um, and I suppose I sometimes tell my bass students when I'm, when I'm saying to them, just play one note and then breathe and then listen and then play another note and then breathe and then listen rather than 
play lots of notes all the time and just assume that that's going to work with the music. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice. Well said. Yeah. And I guess it's not necessarily easier to play like that because I've, I've found, you know, at least on other instruments, I'm, I'm an amateur drummer, that <laughs> playing simple things consistently for a long time is actually one of the hardest things I've ever done. Oh, that's... Uh, and that's pretty much what we ask the bass players to do, yeah? Yes, and that that is so true, that mm. playing simply and playing consistently and constantly. Yeah. So as a bass player, I've, um, you know, you are actually playing the whole tune. You are like a drummer in a sense that when the tune gets counted off, you start playing and you don't stop till the end of the tune, whereas, say, other instruments like keyboard players or guitarists or singers or even have these long breaks where mm -hmm. maybe they don't play anything at all. Yeah. And so they can wait and wait and listen and get ready for the next section that they're going to play. You don't have time to do that as a bass player. You always have to be thinking about the next note that you're going to play. And in a sense, playing every single note consistently and constantly appropriately, I won't. I don't like using the word correct, but, but playing it in a way that makes the music sound good Just mm. playing a really simple bass line is really quite quite hard, yep. you know. When I get students um, who are really interested in trying to improve their chops, I get them to listen to people like Fela Kuti or something on one of the, some of the Afrobeat bass lines where they'll play the same bass line for nine minutes and it might be syncopated and, and, and have some fast runs in it. But the trick is you've got to play the same line for nine minutes and that really, that that's a tough ask for a lot of musicians. Yeah. And... I find like what you're saying, just to get a, a bass player to go doom, do doom, regularly and consistently for a, three, maybe three and a half, five minutes, it's a hard skill. It's a meditation. Yes. And um, yeah, you're right. It, it takes a certain mindset to do that well. Yeah. It, yeah, it does. You and distract your mind from wandering off because when you think about other things, then you yeah lose the groove. Yeah. So it takes a certain mindset to do that it's, it's yeah. almost like a, a trance or meditation yeah. as you said yeah yeah i think about a track that i was on the first amphibian album that we made um which called shelter which is the or the tracks called shelter and the bass line is it's six notes over four bars and maybe six notes over eight bars and it repeats for eight minutes pretty much the same And when we recorded that track, we had a big argument in the band because I thought the track was really empty sounding, that everyone would think it's boring, that it didn't, you know, it didn't have enough happening. And I'd always try and play more notes and the producer was always going, too many notes, too many notes. That track has been our most successful track. It's been played on yeah. videos and TV. It's by far and away the track mm. that's made us the most money. And it was a really great lesson in minimalism in understanding that if you get the right connection between the drums, the bass and the other instruments and the maybe a vocal, you don't need to play much at all for it yep. to sound good. And okay. maybe it's going to sound good if you play less. Mm. Well, well said. Yeah. You're a bass player, I'm a drummer. Are we natural enemies, kick and bass in the mix? Uh, are they friends? Are they foes? What What is your take on that? I think very much friends, or they're, mm. they're companions. Companions. Yeah, I yeah, love it. yeah. They walk down the funk road or whatever beautiful musical road that we're on together. Um, Please explain. Uh, well, I, let, let me put it this way: you know, we're in Byron Bay, so I 
tell some of my surfy students, I, you know, they get a bit um, pissed off with my um, cheesy surfing analogies to playing music. And I sometimes think if the, it's like the drummer is the shape of the wave and the swell. If you're surfing, the drummer is the wave and the bass player is the surfer. And so okay. they work beautifully together. If you've got a beautiful surfer on a beautiful wave, then it's going to look awesome, you know. And it's the same with got music. It. If you've got, got it, yeah. and but you, they have to be, you know, work together. And maybe the analogy breaks down because the wave doesn't really listen to the surfer at all. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I've found I've, I've found the best drummers are people that I know are really listening and reacting to my bass lines, and I'm doing the same thing. Mm. Um. I think there's two aspects to the question in terms of there's a performance aspect and then there's a recording and making the music aspect. In the performance aspect, it's, you know, I find a lot of my students who are learning bass or just starting out on bass, they're, you know, when they're playing with a drummer in an ensemble, they might just be listening to the hi-hat. You know, and I and one of the things that I do, and this was a this was something that Steve, uh, that Jim Kelly, another great guitarist who lives around here, taught me to do in his ensemble sessions. You get people really listening to each other in the ensemble, and so I tell the bass player after they've played through a song once, okay, can you can you sing me the kick pattern on the drums? Can you sing me the snare pattern? And then I ask the bass uh, ask the drummer. Can you sing me the bass line? And invariably, for people who are quite new or novices to playing together, they won't be able to. They won't be able to, you know, sing back the parts, which proves to me that they actually weren't listening to what the drummer was playing on the kick drum. I see. Or what the bass player was playing as the bass line. They might have picked a couple of notes right, but not the whole phrase. And, Got it, yeah. and so I think as a bass player, I you know, the kick drum and my instrument share the same frequency range. And so we I, I have to know how the drummer is hitting the kick, how hard they're hitting it, you know, what sort of tone they're making. And I've got to I've got to try and sculpt my sound to make something beautiful between the two. And and I find that the good drummers that I've played with do the same thing. And so they're, you know, halfway through a session, I, I did a session with Hamish Stewart, this fantastic drummer mm. in Sydney, and he was he was great because he was so, you know, he's a, he's one of the best musicians in Australia, and I was quite nervous um, playing with him because wow, I'm playing with Hamish Stewart, but he was so encouraging and so interested in what I was playing, and sometimes he'd stop and go, oh, I really like what you were doing. Can you just show me again because I really want to get onto that, and then he'd design his drum part around what I was doing. And so it's just, it's that thing about being, you know, being a real collaborator with the rhythm section and the, mm. especially in the bass frequencies. And then when you get to the recording studio, it's all about the tone that the two instruments are making. And so if you've played together beautifully on the track or if you've been listening along to a sequence and you've been really locking in with that sequence then you give the sound engineer or the producer or maybe it's yourself doing it lots of options for way you want for the way you want those two instruments to sound together mm-hmm. because you know in some sorts of music say maybe in hip hop the the bass is sitting way below the kick drum the bass is just this subby thing that's just quite atonal it's not really providing any harmonic foundation it's just more providing an energy to the track yeah 
Whereas, say, maybe in other forms of music, it might be the opposite. It might be, um, I'm just trying to think, maybe a little bit more so in jazz, maybe not um, because they're both of the instruments need to have that sort of definition within the mix. But, you know, there's lots of ways within the studio you can sort of separate the instruments so the frequencies don't interfere with each other. So, you know, you can filter off the bottom of the bass or the bottom of the kick drum, depending on how mm -hmm. you want them to sit together. or And so you've got two frequency or two sets of instruments that have a specific frequency ranges. Yep. So I don't know, that's maybe a long-winded answer got to it. a mm. question, but yeah, they're definitely companions and not enemies. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I find, I find, um, I've had the good fortune by luck or whatever to have played with a lot of the really great um, drummers around Australia and a lot of drummers generally. And I find that I can sometimes tell whether the drummer's going to be good or not in the first four bars or eight bars in terms of the way they play the hi-hats and the way that their sound is interacting with mine. Mm. Um, hi-hats especially because hi-hats give you a real sense of whether the drummer's in control of their sticking. Yeah. You know, hi-hats are, a, yeah. as you might realise, they're, they're a lifetime of work to get that control really, really under your fingers. Mm. So Well said. Yeah. Do, do you find yourself producing and recording and mixing music at times? Yes, yes, I do, probably more so now. And um, mm. I think maybe it's becoming more and more of a way of the way people work with for a, a, a large chunk of their career, maybe as they're starting yeah. out, that you really have to um, understand the production side of things as well as the performance side of things. Mm. Um, I, I remember when I had a residency when I was working on my PhD on this um, on the human machine music project and I had a little electronica ensemble called Cyberbase that we used to do a gig at the old arts factory every Friday night. It was a fantastic I residency. I remember those days. I was always there. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and, but I used to have to set up the PA and then play. And so, because we didn't have enough money to, to pay a sound engineer and, and in inevitably that's what's happening more and more if you're especially doing small gigs when you start out. You've, mm. got, to, you've got to set up the sound And I find that that is a sort of slightly different headspace to actually performing and creating where... Very much, yeah. And, um, and, and but I, I try to tend to, when I'm, when I'm producing or when I'm recording, I tend to try and use the old software packages that I've been using for a long time, which for me is Pro Tools and Ableton. And, um, and you, you can get so caught up in, in the actual process of the technology and clicking through various menus on your screen that you can really forget the creative goals you had. And the beautiful thing about musical instruments is that they're really great interactive tools in terms of I can close my eyes and just listen to the sound that I'm making on my double bass and I can really absorb myself in that. Whereas I still find I'm not probably the same with a mixing desk. I'm sure great mm. sound engineers develop the same sort of symbiotic relationship with the technology in the desks. Absolutely, yes. But, um, you know, I find that as a musician who spends a lot of time recording, I still have to switch headspaces a little mm. bit and make sure that how's my gain structure, you know, how's the phase, you know, is it going to the right auxiliary? Have I got the everything patched in properly? You know, they're, they're all sort of more mechanical, logical. I don't know whether it's left brain 
or mm-hmm. right brain, but it's a different, seems to be a different part of my brain to when I can strap on my bass or just pick up my bass and just close my Once eyes and yeah. play. I've got an engineering question for you. <laughs> oh, I, I hope I can <laughs> so answer it. We, um, we, we all love a really powerful bass with, you know, a lot of bass energy. Yeah. However, the problem is today that a lot of people don't listen on speakers, but on phones. Yes. On uh, iPads. Yes. Um, if we're lucky, on, on earbuds. Yeah. How do you get a bass to sound well on those? You know, you don't want to, if you make it too subby, then it sounds amazing on a PA and, and really powerful, but On, yeah. a, on an iPhone, it might not be even, you know, you might not even hear the bass at all. Yeah. So, how do you find a compromise? Wow. Um, that's a really, I know, I, the, my first thought is that that's a big sound, that's the big sound engineering question that, um, yeah. that I've got some strategies that I do and they might not be the right ones, but the right in inverted commas, but I, I tend to... I tend to start off if I'm if I'm a bass player I tend to start off with making sure that my tone under my that I'm getting from my fingers so so the sound of the bass really starts with your fingers um, the way you play the instrument if you want a subby tone maybe use if you're using your fingers maybe more of the fleshier part of your fingers and not the ends you know obviously cutting off your fingernails so you don't get that mm. poppy sort of transient or high-frequency transient that you can get with fingernails that, that will actually start to be uneven and not consistent maybe during the recording. So, file your nails. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, make sure that that you're, you can play really evenly. So, so one of the things I find um, with bass players who haven't done much recording or playing live is that They, they can't actually make a sound that's constant in terms of its amplitude. Yeah. Um, you know, because that's a real headache. Dynamics, that's a real yes. headache for engineers. It gives them so mm. much work to actually have to make sure that the sound is actually, you know, of a consistent amplitude. And it's really good to do that with your fingers. You know, obviously compressors, compressors help that um, and compressors will color the sound a certain way. And sometimes... Um, that's a good way to go, um, depending on the sound you want to get to, you know, to introduce compression early on in the side in mm. the in the signal chain, and also using a system where you've got a whole range of frequencies being nicely um, amplified. Um, I'm I'm just thinking of of the Avalon S37 S3737, which we have at uni, which just I love the sound that that makes on a bass. It just mm-hmm. can really bring up the subs and yep. the mids in a way that then makes mixing it really easy. Um, just in terms of once you've got it tracked and you're interested in mixing, I, I really, um, the thing I talk to with my students and what we try and get students to do in the audio production sessions is to use reference tracks. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, yeah. Really, really listen to the, the the instruments or the music that you really love the sound of that really moves you. When you listen to you just go, oh, that's awesome. That's the sound you want to go for. And, yeah. and so whatever you're listening back to, um, whatever you're listening back through headphones or speakers or whatever, that's the sound you're going for. So if you can, if you can I suppose, calibrate your hearing so you mm-hmm. use that reference track 
in a way to do that and then you can hear how that sounds through your headphones or through the particular yep. monitors you're using. That's a and great tip. Yeah, and then and then it's just a matter of using your knowledge of EQ, your know, of of dynamics, of signal processing to actually help, and maybe sound spatialization just to make that sound sound in that way. I find headphones personally are really good for for checking out the sound field of a reference track, maybe more so than monitors. You can really hear how the, where they've placed all instruments in the mix, and. Also, headphones are useful for for really hearing the nuances and maybe glitches mm. and pops and yes. sort of artifacts in your recording, which you're trying to get rid of. But um, I also, you know, find that after you've done a mix, it's really important to listen to it through in your car stereo, through your headphones, through a big room because it's going to mm. sound slightly different. Yeah. And um, that's where, you know, you know all, all this, that sort of art of mixing comes into play. Personally, I've, um, I, I've got into really using multiband compressors. Oh, um, yeah. Um, I find them to be really creative tools for making a sound sound a certain way. Um, and, and you know, that's one of the things I've found in mixing in the box, that multiband compression actually, if you, get, if you use one of the good plugins, mm. um, you can really sculpt the sound in, in minute detail. Yeah. Beautiful. Very. if people want to know more about you, uh, where can they find more information? Have you got a website or social channels? Um, um, I suppose you can, um, you can go, uh, the website, um, you can go to amphibianmusic.com. That's that's one place. Uh, we have a Solar Sunflower Project website as well at, at Southern Cross University. So you can just Google Southern Cross University Sunflower. It's the 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 link is a really long, you know, corporate web link. But if you Google Southern Cross University Sunflower, you can find more about that project. Um, I've got a I've got a sort of Twitter feed called Dr Baz H, where I'm just posting. I just tend to post interesting stuff on that. And also on my own Facebook, which is Baz Hill. Um, and the other one I was going to say is, uh, gee, it's funny how things drop out of your drop out of your mind quickly. The the SCU Sunflower has one. Um, oh, the YouTube channel is probably the other one. I'm, I should also I should always make these all the same name um, as I tell my students to do. <laughs> But I've got a funny named mm. YouTube channel called Cyber. Byron Bay Baseman. <laughs> so, so it's like a play on the concept of, of the project Cyberbase that I had. So, Cyber Byron Bay Baseman. I tend to post all sorts of interesting videos that I've uh, that I've made. Um, I've done. Mm. I've been fortunate enough to do some interesting traveling around the world. So, there's some footage of musicians in France and Africa and all sorts of places. Um, Fantastic. We. All, I also was teaching. Um, the um, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard when they were down in Melbourne at RMIT and I've just found some footage that of them in a performance workshop class at RMIT University that I was teaching at and it's pretty much the first gig of that band and um, I remember telling that band in the music industry sort of business classes to not worry about Australia and just go straight overseas and I'm really glad that they did that. I don't know whether it's because they were planning to do that or they followed my advice, but but they went straight overseas and they've become huge. And so that's, Great. that's yeah, 
Good, Good luck to them. Well, thank you so much for your... Uh, for sharing your base wisdom with us today. Thanks. It's really good to have this base uh, special episode. I took a lot out of that for myself. So thank you so much. Thanks heaps, Jan. And, and it's great to be in this beautiful studio you've got here in Mullum. And um, hopefully we can chat again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay, cheers. cheers. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry Hill. A special episode on your backgrounds, on your musical career, and of course, all about bass. That was really insightful. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to meeting up soon again and maybe do some work together. Who knows? If you enjoyed this episode, please go to the show notes and scroll down. Uh, you'll find all the links to Barry's website and social channels right there. Also, in your podcast player, please hit the like button or subscribe button, whichever it is. And I would really appreciate if you could please leave a five-star rating and maybe even a little review that would make my day. And since it's the beginning of a new year, I would like to ask you... For a little favor, please. Podcasting is a bit like a one-way street from me to you, but that also means I'm making a lot of assumptions what I believe is important to you and what you want to hear. And who knows, I might be completely wrong. So I need you to communicate back to me. And the easiest way to do that is with a survey. I would like to find out more about who you are and what your interests are and about your music, what you like about the show, are the episodes too long or too short, is there anything I could do better and so on. So at the beginning of each year I would like to run a little survey which is now already live on my website. So if you could please head over to mixartist.com.au slash survey and tell me about the things that you do, your interests, and what I can do better to help you even more. I would really appreciate this because so far it's been uh, an amazing ride. I love podcasting, it's fantastic. And I need to hear from you if I need to do anything differently. This is really important to me. So um, if you've taken anything out of these episodes, please head over to mixartist.com.au slash survey and fill out the survey. It's going to be there for a couple of weeks at the beginning of this year, 2023. And uh, the next year I will do another one and so on and so on. Because I want to tune my podcast. I want to make it better. I want to make it more valuable for you. And I need your help with that. So let's start a conversation. And it starts pretty much by you filling out the survey. Um, you don't need to leave your name there. Uh, that's perfectly fine. It can be anonymous. However, of course, there is an option for you to voluntarily leave your name and email address if you want to get an email contact with me. But you don't have to. Either way, please fill out the survey. I ask you so many times. I think you know exactly what to do. What's the link again? It's mixartist.com slash survey head over straight away thank you so much speak to you next week bye for now